Good morning. As we continue to worship our awesome God, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. As we take a look at God's Word together. If you're visiting with us online or in, at church, uh, please fill out one of those connection cards, which we don't have in the pew in front of you. Um, <laughs> Because of, because of COVID. It's a new hashtag, I think, we're working on. Uh, but you can do it online at nolwood.ca slash connect. And I think that should get you to our digital connect card. So just to let us know that you're here with us. Let's pray. This is weird. I'm not going to lie. I know you're not supposed to open an, a sermon with that, but this is, this is good weird, but it's weird. But let's pray. Father God, I just... Uh, I just thank you for today. I thank you that we can come to uh, together, if it be online or in person, to worship you, to be reminded of who you are. We thank you that you're our Heavenly Father, and regardless of whatever our fathers may be here on earth, you are the perfect example of a father. And a father who cares and knows and is in control of all things, who encourages us to come up to his lap and even to beat his chest if need be, Lord. We just thank you that we can do that because we have been saved by your amazing grace through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we come to worship you, Lord, I pray that you are indeed glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And, Lord, there's no way that I can do this on my own, so may you do that. Lord, by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed and the appropriate affection. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. The other day, um, Caleb had asked me if we could have s'mores. And I said, sure, bud, let's have s'mores. I like to have s'mores, right? We all like to have s'mores. Who doesn't like s'mores? If you don't like s'mores, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, I saw your hand. Um, You know crackers and then you can go to like the store and get these cookies with the chocolate that's already and then you can get them with caramel inside like that's game changer situation that's going on there uh but so i said yeah but we're not doing anything let's let's do that but unfortunately what happened is plans changed i had forgotten not forgotten but we were going out to um uh to our principal at the school had retired so we went out to go do that and and uh, we had our car all decorated and driving down commissioners with balloons on your antenna and all over your car doesn't work out very well. So I pulled into my aunt's house who lives just off commissioners and I'm just pulled in there and like, let's take off all this stuff. And then my aunt comes out of her house. Now, my aunt's like 85, okay? And she does not care about social distancing at all. Um, so we come out, and she comes out, and she's like, hey, and then I'm like, yeah. So we were there for maybe two more hours, um, and it was just an amazing time. So what happened, obviously, is that we did not have s'mores, even though I had said, yes, let's have s'mores. And in fact, this whole week, there's been a lot of that conversation, let's have s'mores, and me going, um, I don't think we can today. I'm sorry. So two things come out of that, Right. I had said that we will do something, and we were unable to do it. Something changed. The first thing, the big thing that comes out of this that's wrong is that I don't know the future, and therefore I can't make final statements. 
Did you ever think about that one? This is why I don't do promises. Like, if I say I promise, like, I'm sure that I can fulfill that promise, right? I don't say, yeah, I promise. I pinky swear. Never do that, okay? You, you'll lose, what's the, what is it? You lose your finger, right? Don't ever do a pinky promise. The second is that I don't have the ability to control everything to make sure that what I said is happened. So not only do I not know what the future is going to be, I have no ability to actually make sure that it happens. It's at some points I had to change my mind. I had to change the words that came out of my mouth. I had to backtrack a little bit. There seems to be a lot of backtracking that happens lately. It's something that is so amazing, though, that we see in this passage that we're going to be looking at in chapter 3 of Malachi. We're looking at chapter, or verses 6 to 12. And it's something that is so profound and so amazing and gives us so much hope for the future. In this previous section that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God is a God of justice. The people of God were crying out to him, asking that he would be a God of justice. Where is this justice that you so much talk about? There is no justice in this world. And God's response is very simple. No one can withstand my justice. If I'm going to cry out for justice, there is an equal justice that gets poured out on everyone. God is holy. I am not. We've all broken God's rules. And that it was only through Jesus Christ that we could even withstand any sort of God pouring out his justice on this world. But even here, God pushes back even more with this amazing statement that he never changes. He has always been the same. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start in verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and I have not and have not kept them. He's returned to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me with the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and there may be a f- food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. In verses 6 to 7, the first part of verse 7, we see this thing that God's unchanging character. This is a very important doctrine. Okay, I'm using that word doctrine, which just means teaching. It's important to understand as we look at who God is. Especially in light of all that we see within Malachi. Especially when we look at verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. A sovereign love. I have loved you. 
Is not Esau Jacob's brother, he says, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved you, but Esau I have hated, he says. So it's important to understand this. God shows his grace by never changing despite his people's consistent unfaithfulness to his, himself. It's an amazing thing. God will remain faithful even though his people do not, be, because he is simply this, a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. He's never changing. See, the people are making an assumption about God. God, you're not fair, right? They've hit economic hard times. Things are rough. They've just gotten back out of exile. They're in the promised land. People are, are, are suffering, and there's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of food going around, and they're crying out to God saying, God, you're not fair. It's not fair that all this is happening. But God, in that quick statement, reminds his people of one thing. In this few verses, you have a pattern within your history of not being faithful to me. So we see this sharp contrast between God and his people. And in verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. This really ends the conversation that even happens before. This verse is important if we are going to understand the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. There's this great song by a, a hip-hop artist called Shai Lin. He's a Christian. And it's called immutability. I was listening to it this morning on repeat. It's great. It goes like this. I'm not going to rap, okay? I can't. It says, as long ago, as long ago as God created the whole world, as long ago before the world was even created, try and wrap your mind around this, okay? Before there was anything, God was there. Okay, so before all of this, he says, as long ago as there was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Before you were sitting in these pews, before there was even a concept of a pew, a very uncomfortable concept sometimes, before there was even buildings, before there was trees, before there were stars in the sky, before all of those things, God was there and he was the same then as he is now. Immutable, the song continues on. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. For, forever you reign, you remain the same. That one verse you can dwell upon for your lifetime. The same God that you cry out to in your pain and your suffering, the same God that we sing these praises to this morning, it's the same God before all things were created. He doesn't change. Never has. Never changes. In James 1 verse 17, it teaches about immutability of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning, it says. The shadow of turning refers to our perspective on the sun. It is eclipsed 
It is eclipsed, it moves, and it, it casts its shadow. The sun rises and sets, appears and disappears every day. It comes out of one tropic and enters into another at certain seasons of the year. But with God, who spiritually speaking is light itself, there is no darkness at all. There is no change with him, nor anything like it. God is unchanged in his nature, his perfections, his purposes, his promises, and his gifts. He is holy. So you say to me, wait, 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 Pastor. There are passages in the Bible that talk about God changing his mind. Well, we could look at Exodus 32, verse 14, or 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. It talks about God changing his mind. But what it's talking about in the context is not God changing his mind like we changed our mind, like I changed my mind with my son and not having a s'mores and causing great disappointment. We're talking about a, a, a change of dispensation and outward dealing towards his people and man. We're not talking about changing so in verse 6, it describes an attribute that, of God that is so important for you and for me, not just because it is exactly who God is, but because it gives us so much hope. It means that God will always do what he says he will do. It means that in all circumstances, God doesn't change. And that's the most important part because it comes along right there in the next verse. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Did you know that all children of Jacob, this is a funny statement, right? It's like when parents are fighting over their kids and their kids are being bad. Hey, make sure you deal with your kid. Right? You remember that? Parents do this all the time. Your, your daughter, your daughter, not mine, is acting out. Go deal with that. So God comes along and says, oh, children of Jacob. This is something I don't understand. And I grew up in the church in Sunday school, and we look at Jacob as like this pinnacle person. Jacob was an awful person. You ever read the story? He's manipulative, little brat the whole time. He plays favoritisms with his kids, which causes a problem with Joseph. And in all of that mess, God is still sovereign and uses it for his glory and for his purposes. Despite all of Jacob's mess, God chooses Jacob and not Esau. Jacob does literally nothing to cause God to save him. There's nothing in his life. So he comes along, he says, oh, children of Jacob, which is essentially saying, just like your dad, you're just like your dad. You're just like him. You're always consistently unfaithful with me. But because I am not changed, I do not change, says the Lord, you are not consumed. Amazing thing. Not because of what they did. It's not because of what I do. It's not because of what you do. It's because our God doesn't change. He is immutable. It is a foundational doctrine in our understanding of who God is. And it's not just some theological book that like you, you just you know I remember talking to someone about how they don't like theology I'm like what do you mean you don't like theology theology tells me about who God is this is who God is he's amazing there's an assurance there if I am saved by God's amazing grace if I am truly his 
if I'm truly his, if I'm truly his son, if I'm truly his daughter, nothing will change about that. So he continues on. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Just as much as God is not changing, his people are constantly doing the same thing. They don't change either. Which means praise God, right? If God is not changing and his people aren't changing, if his people aren't changing, well, let's praise God that he's not changing his mind about things. There's a consistent unfaithfulness that his people are pouring out. Since the very day they have not kept his statutes. Think about how long it took them to rebel against Moses when God called them out of Egypt. It wasn't long into the trip that they were complaining about things. Therefore, I, the Lord, do not change. And then he comes and he calls them to return to him. Return, he says. He's calling his people constantly to return to him. The immutable, unchanging character of God is a sign in his his purpose to bless his chosen people. It's in spite of their constant falling away, their rejection of God, their sin, that they are not destroyed. It's because of God's unchanging character that they're not destroyed. See, in this short verse, we learn four amazing things. Like the Lord is not does not change. The second is that his people, the children of Jacob, are, are, are constantly, constantly rebelling against him. When we look at this, these two points together, the third point is this. They are complete opposites. God's people never change, just like their father. They continue to do the same. They are trying to cheat God of, out of actually what is happening. And the fourth point that we see in this, in this verse is that God's persistent goodness in the face of their persistent, selfish scheming of a people, just as much as Jacob consistently and persistently schemed against his brother Esau or, or his uncle or, I don't know, let's just keep going down the list. God is persistent with his people in showing them goodness. As we continue on in those verses, well, how have they been persistent in their evilness, in their conniving? In verses 7b to 9, it says God's unchanging character is seen in his call because he continuously calls them back. Why is he calling them back? Simply because they're trying to rob him. And I use the word try because can you rob God? No. You can't. So the end there, he says, but you say, how shall we return? Which is one of those rhetorical questions. It's not rhetorical. It's kind of a snarky question, actually, because God has already laid out in his law how they are to return to him. And they're coming back to him. Well, how are we supposed to know? Well, haven't I been telling you this whole time? There's a whole book called Deuteronomy that I wrote about it. These are the consequences for your sin. These are the consequences for your obedience. This is what happens. This is how you get back. So you have this unchanging character seen in his call in these next few verses. But how, you say, but you say, how shall we return? Another way of looking at this question from their perspective is, in what way have we turned away from you, they respond. And God comes up and he's like, well, let me tell you how you have. You've robbed me. 
But can you rob God? No, you can't. You can't keep something from him that is his. Any idea that we as humans own anything in our world, that God own, that in a world that God owns everything, is really uh, resistant to the real worship and devotion. I remember growing up, and I would hear it all the time, you know, dear God, in our offering, dear God, just, uh, we just want to give back to you something that you have given us. That's how we would view offering, right? I've heard it many times. I think I've even prayed that before. Can we give back something to God that's already his? No, it's his. So then if it's not giving back to, what is it then? It's an act of worship. It's, it's, and then he begins to go on. As he continues on, he shows how they've been trying to rob him. They've been trying to rob him through tithes and contributions. And these people continuously do these things. And because they try to withhold these things, God pours out his curse upon him, them because that is being faithful to what his word has said. In verse 9 it says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of them. They kept coming up with excuses as we were talking about before. They, they, there was economic hard times, so maybe the rich people were sick of being the, 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 the crutch upon the whole nation, so they were withholding things. Maybe the poor of the nation were saying, you know what, I really simply just don't have anything to give, so I'm just going to withhold that too. But ultimately, this is an issue of trust and understanding the generosity that they had been given through God. They didn't trust God, so they didn't obey. I remember when we were first married, we didn't have a lot. Like, that's really where you, that's what marriage should start off with, just not having anything. Um, And that's where we were at. That's fine. I was working four jobs. Steph was working some minimum call which she still can't talk on the phone about. She's so traumatic, traumatized. And uh, so we come along and we're married. And I remember going to church and we're coming and we see the offering and I'm thinking, you know what? I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to give. But there's always a but. I did just go out to eat. Or I did just go see that movie. Or I have cable TV. When cable was a thing. But I don't have anything to give as an act of worship to my God. See, how we tithe exposes a heart problem that Christ died for. It's, an, it's, it's, it's something that this verse kind of just hits you. These verses just hit you. It's the most taboo subject talking about money, isn't it? I remember as a pastor, people are always saying, Pastor, you need to preach about tithing. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> but when you preach through the text and it comes up with the text, it says it right here. Why does it matter to God about this act of worship and tithing? Why does it matter to him? Because our giving is a diagnostic window into how we view God. I am not giving on a Sunday or whatever during the week it is, because you can do it electronically now. I'm not doing that 
because I'm paying some sort of membership dues to a club. I'm not doing that because somehow I can win favor with God because I'm giving back a little bit of what he has given me. I'm doing it because I reflect upon the generosity that God has poured on on me. His people in Malachi had forgotten all of what God has done for them. He called them out of Egypt. Before that, he called Abraham, who was worshiping. And he wasn't just worshiping Yahweh at that time. He was worshiping gods. And one of them spoke. And one of them chose him and pulled him out and dragged him out of his home country and brought him into this promised land where he went to Egypt eventually and lied a bunch of times about who his wife was. You see a pattern here? Jacob was born eventually, later to be called Israel. Manipulative person. But God even uses that as, he, as Jacob begins to raise another manipulative little brat named Joseph who tells on his brothers. Imagine that, right? His brothers respond in evilness wanting to kill him, but they sell him. It's an amazing thing about how God is unchanging. And they were trying to steal it, so our giving comes out of what God has done for us, not out of anything else. Tithing is an act of worship. It comes out of the realizing that what God has done for us through his son, when we see the generosity that God has poured out on us through his son, Jesus Christ, we will give out of that generosity that Christ has shown us. Has Christ not done the best thing possible for you? You were an object of wrath. And God comes and he chose you and brings you into his family. And now you are a son and daughter of the living God. Do you understand these things? So God calls his people to come back to him by calling them to to get their priorities right. That is why in the New Testament it doesn't say a percentage. What God desires and what he values is a heart that overflows with gratitude and thanksgiving to the God who saved us and who gives us all things. Knowing our needs before we even ask, as Matthew 6 says, it is that kind of heart that gives generously and willingly and cheerfully in response to the love and grace that abound in Christ and what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. This is really a question of trust. Do the people, do I, do you, trust God enough to obey? God is unchanging. He has kept all of his promises, both the blessing and curse. He has done nothing to give the people any reason not to trust him, so he calls them to come and to repent and to return. God's unchanging character is shown in his relentless love for his people. He calls him to himself. He calls him to obey and to trust. And in verses 10 to 12, we see that God's unchanging character is shown in his amazing generosity. This is probably, verse 10 is probably one of the verses that are abused the most in the Bible, by the way. Uh, prosperity gospel people love it. The pastor will come up to the stage and, and, and do this. And now make sure that you give all of your retirement savings to the church and uh, God will 
times it by ten because his word says. Because they're saying that because the prize is not Jesus. The prize is the materials that they get. Come to Jesus and he's going to give you a BMW. Instead of the prize being the very presence of God. So three times in this verse, God uh, shows amazing generosity. Will, the windows of heaven will open in an unbelievable abundance. The second one is the Lord promises to empty the heavens of rain. He'll hold nothing back. And until there is no more need, he says later with the third reason, many uh, means something even stronger. Until there is a, a wearing out of, of sufficiency, like, like there's nothing left back. But the, again, the blessing for us and for the people of God are not materialistic things. It's his very presence that he gives us through Jesus Christ. And do you see what God is promising to his people? He is promising an overwhelming blessing more than the people are able to even use. And the gift is himself. And that is accomplished through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. So you may ask, so what? Why does this all matter? We learn three things about who God is. God is unchanging. But just as much as he is unchanging, so are we. We are always running away. But God is a covenant-keeping God and calls his people to return to him by trusting him enough to obey him. The, third, the second thing is this. Our generosity comes out of God's generosity. Our generosity and our act of worship of tithing comes out of the generosity we experience through Jesus Christ. The issue is trust. Do we trust him enough to obey? The third is out of obedience comes blessing. I'm not saying that you're going to get that brand new BMW that you kind of wish you had. Or whatever. Mercedes. Jeep. Land Rover. The new house. It doesn't mean that you'll get a house. The prize isn't the material things. Don't elevate the gift above the giver of the gift, as John Piper would say. The prize is the presence of God. So the main point is this. Our tithing can expose a heart problem that Christ died for and helps us understand how to live generously in response to God's grace to us in Jesus. A commentary, commentator put it this way. All this should lead us to humble gratitude. Think of it this way. What do good parents delight to do at Christmas time? Good parents love getting, gift, getting generous gifts to their children. Indeed, sometimes parents love to give so much that they are excessively distraught when they cannot do more, or they unwisely spend beyond their means. But good parents do not just love showing generosity to their children. Good parents also love seeing generosity flow from their children, especially as they get older. That is the spirit behind this passage. God does delight to give his children good gifts, but alongside of that, he also longs to create within us a generous spirit. As earthly parents, we often fail because of our own spirit is not generous. All too often, our children see very clearly our selfishness, whether towards them or towards our neighbors. 
But it is not so with God. On that first Christmas, the Father gave the most generous gift ever, the gift of His Son to the world. He did not hold back what He treasured most, even though He knew that He would be rejected, despised, and abused the gift of His Son. The Son also gave Himself freely, voluntarily, stepping down from His glorious throne, sitting aside his heavenly glory. Jesus became poor simply by entering our life, but even beyond that, he lived his life as one who was materially poor, a working-class man in a working-class family struggling to make ends meet. See, because of our ungenerous hearts, we, as God's people, deserve to experience God's curse of futility and frustration on all that we do. But instead, Jesus, the generous one, endured the curse of the cross for us. Having taken from us the fate that we deserve, Jesus has now shared with us the destiny that he truly deserves, giving us a right to his inheritance. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Because Jesus so abundantly fulfilled God's giving challenge, we will enjoy God's promise of blessing forever. To the extent that we grasp the amazing good news, we too will begin to excel in the grace of giving. Praise God, He is unchanging. Praise God for what He has done for us, because in that, He graciously calls me to return to Him when I run away, when I take my priorities of going to the movies or dinner or that brand new car. Because I really could use a new car. I, no, I cannot use a new car. I want one. My van's okay. Do you see what God has done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ? See, our tithing, when we come and we worship in that way, it's not a checklist, it's not some sort of legalistic requirement. It is an outflowing of what God has done for me for you. Our tithing can expose a heart problem that Christ died for, and, but it helps us to understand how to live generously in response to God's grace to us in Jesus. Do you trust him enough to obey? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this chance we had to just worship you. Father, as we continue to worship you, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and honored. Convict us in our lives of those sins. But Lord, we just praise you that you are a God who's gracious and merciful and is always calling us back to him. May we res- to you. May we respond to that call. And may we worship you in spirit and truth. And amen.